Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Hi everyone, and thanks for tuning in today. My name is Aaron, and I am one of the pastors at Exilic, and I wanna welcome you to our virtual online service today. Last week, we started a brand new series called Atomic Spiritual Habits, How Our Tiny Habits Can Create Big, Big Change. And the reason why we're doing this sermon series is because this quarantine, whether we know it or not, it's molding and shaping us. And it's molding and shaping our habits in particular. It's shaping our sleeping habits. It's shaping our eating habits. It's shaping our binging habits. It's shaping our gaming habits. It's shaping even our spiritual habits. And because we're all creatures of habit, whether we know it or not, we're going to carry with us these habits, good and bad, into our post-quarantine life. And so the goal of this series then is to stop our bad habits, start some good spiritual habits, and to carry with us these good spiritual habits into our post quarantine life. And these spiritual habits don't have to be really, really big. They can be really, really small, but we should never underestimate the power of a small habit. Uh, just as an atom is really, really tiny, but can produce an atomic explosion, similarly, our tiny spiritual habits can also produce explosive spiritual growth in our lives as well. And our text today talks about the importance of doing spiritual habits. And so if you read with me verse 2 and 3, it says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. And what this text is saying is that one day, all of us will be like Jesus. But until that day, all of us need to continually purify our impure hearts. So on the one hand, what Jesus did to forgive our sins is once and for all. On the other hand, we are all still works in progress. 
And our hearts need to be under construction under a day, on a daily basis, and they need to be renovated on a daily basis. And this is where good spiritual habits uh, come into play. Uh, last week, we said that uh, what we do shapes who we become. So our doing shapes our whoing. So for example, if you go to CrossFit once a year, you probably don't think of yourself as a CrossFitter. You go to CrossFit once a week, and you'll start to think that you're a CrossFitter. You go to church once a year, maybe on Christmas or Easter, probably don't think that you're a Christian. But you start going to church once a week, you'll probably start to think that you're a Christian. What we do shapes who we become. But today I wanna to talk about the exact opposite. Who we are also shapes what we do. In other words, our habits flow out of our identity. And the more pride we have in identifying as a Christian, the more likely it is we're gonna practice these good spiritual habits. The less pride we have in being and identifying as a Christian, the less likely it is that we're gonna practice these good spiritual habits. I like what James Clear says in his book, Atomic Habits, when he says, the more pride you have in a particular aspect of your identity, the more motivated you will be to maintain the habits associated with it. If you're proud of how your hair looks, you'll develop all sorts of habits to care for and maintain it. If you're proud of the size of your biceps, you'll make sure you never skip an upper body workout. If you're proud of the scarves you knit, you'll be more likely to spend hours knitting each week. Once your pride gets involved, you'll fight tooth and nail to maintain your habits. Improvements are only temporary until they become a part of who you are. So let me ask you a very simple yet very complex question today. Who do you think you are? For me, I am a husband, I'm a father, uh, I'm a pastor, uh, I'm a sports fanatic, I'm a lover of desserts, I'm right-handed, and I am an ENFJ. That's who I am. But that's not all that I am. Those things describe who I am, but they don't ultimately define who I am. Who I fundamentally am deep down in my core is that I am a child of God. And you know what? So are you. And that's what John wants to remind us of in our text today. And so in John, uh, he says in verse one, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. To give you a little bit of background on the author John, uh, he was one of the 12 disciples. And out of the 12, he was the baby of the group because he was the youngest. Um, there's actually this humorous story in uh, John's gospel account where um, uh, the disciples are all hiding and uh, they, they find out that uh, the tomb that Jesus was buried in uh, is now empty. And they're all in complete disbelief. And so Peter and John go running to the empty tomb to find out for themselves whether it's really empty or not. And in the Gospel of John, there's this one line where it says that John got there first. Well, why did John get to the empty tomb first? It's because John was young and his legs were like a gazelle. Peter was old. And so he was more like a turtle. That's why John got to the empty tomb first. And so John was the baby of the group. But when John is writing this letter, 
He's no longer a baby. He's actually a really, really old man. Some scholars think that he's pushing 90 years old. And by now, he's the oldest of the 12 because all of the other 12 disciples or all the other disciples have now been killed and they're all dead. And he's writing this letter to the next generation of Christians. And not only the next generation of Christians, but the the generation after that, the second and the third. And you know that because throughout the letter of... uh, that, that he's writing here. He refers to all of his readers as my dear children or my little children. And the reason why he says that is because when you get to a certain age, you sort of become a father figure to everyone. And so he's not really writing to his, and he's not really writing to his biological children so much as he's writing to his spiritual children. And what is the one message that he wants the next generation of Christians to know? The one message that he wants the next generation of Christians to know is that they are children of God. And what John is saying carries a lot of weight because you have to keep in mind that John was one of the 12 disciples, but he was not only one of the 12, he was a part of the innermost three uh, that were closest to Jesus along with Peter and James. And because all the other disciples are are dead, uh, at this point, John now represents the most authoritative spiritual leader in the world. There is no one that knew Jesus better than John when John is writing this letter. And yet, what is the one thing he wants the next generation of Christians to know? The one thing he wants them to know is that they are all children of God. And that is what I want us to know as well. And I think one of the reasons why John wants to remind his readers of that is because we are so prone to forget that we are children of God. We all suffer from spiritual amnesia. And because we suffer from spiritual amnesia, we start to find our identity not in Christ and what he has done for us, but we start to look for identity in lesser things. I'll give you an example of this. About five years ago, Rhonda Rousey was on top of the sports world. She was a female UFC champion. I think she had won 12 matches in a row. Most of them were in the first round. And because she was such a successful fighter, her fame in the fighting world also led to a career in acting in some pretty big Hollywood movies. So Ronda Rousey, by all accounts, was on top of the sports world, but she was on top of the world as a whole as well. But on one particular night, all of that would change when she lost a fight to an underdog that she was not supposed to lose to. Her title was completely stripped from her and seemingly everything else. And after losing that fight, Ronda Rousey, who identified as a fighter, who primarily identified as, as an actress as well, this is what she says in an interview with Ellen. Honestly, I was sitting in the corner of the medical room and I was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. In that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one gives an expletive about me anymore without this. And what Ronda Rousey is rightly and accurately pointing out is that the roadmap that our culture gives to us on how to discover our identity and how to uh, acquire the good life, the roadmap that our culture gives to us, it's really hollow and empty. It leaves us very unsatisfied. But what she's also rightly pointing out is that the roadmap that our culture gives to us to, again, discover an identity or to achieve the good life, 
it's always based upon performance. It's always based upon achievement and merit. And you have to realize that's an enormous amount of pressure, particularly if you can't live up to the hype. And if you can live up to the hype, it's only a matter of time before you don't, like Ronda Rousey. Christianity, on the other hand, says that your identity is not based upon what you achieve. Your identity is based upon what you receive because it's already been achieved on your behalf through the work of Christ. You are a child of God, and that's not something that you earn based upon your own merit, but it's based upon the meritorious works of Jesus Christ. I like what Tim Keller says when he says, we try to create a dazzling image of ourselves because we don't really believe that we are golden before Christ. If God is not at the center of your life, something else is. So John is writing this letter to the next generation of Christians because what he wants to remind them more than anything else is that who they fundamentally are are children of God. And that is what I want to remind you of as well. I know that not all of you know my own personal story, but if I were to open up the curtain just a little bit for you to take a peek, you might be surprised to learn that at the age of 10, I almost ran away from home. I remember opening up a bag, putting my clothes in the bag, and my game plan that, that evening was to open up my bedroom window, to jump out that window and never look back. The only reason why I didn't run away from home was A, because I wasn't sure how I was gonna eat, and B, because I had a younger sister that was only three years old and I could never abandon her. But there was just so much brokenness in my, my family, and I'll spare you all the details, but I'm sure many of you can relate. There was so much brokenness in our family that I wanted to run away from home. Now, I'm a girl dad, I have two girls. It's unfathomable to me that any one of them would wanna run away from home at that, that young of an age. But you know what? That was me. I wanted to run away. And so when someone like me hears that who I fundamentally am is a child of God, that in this family I am safe, I am loved, I am cared for, I'm forgiven no matter what stupid stuff I do, I'm adopted, that I'll never be beaten, but in fact, my elder brother, Jesus Christ, was beaten and killed on my behalf, when someone like me hears that I'm a child of God, it's paradigm shifting. It totally reorients the way that I view myself and therefore how I live my life. Why? Because our do comes out of our who. Who I am shapes how I live my life and what I do. And as a child of God then, there should sort of be some family resemblance with God our Father. There should be sort of a like father, like son mentality or like father, like daughter mentality. And we see that in verses six and nine as well. John says, no one who abides in verse six, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And in verse nine, it says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, at first glance, these verses seem very, very problematic because we all have a PhD in sin, and we're all daily practitioners of sin. And what this verse seems to suggest is that if you sin, 
you are not a child of God. Now that's problematic because we all sin on a day-to-day basis. So what do we do with these verses? Well, here's what we do anytime we get to a problematic portion of scripture. Our interpretive game plan should be to let scripture interpret scripture. Anytime you get to a difficult portion of scripture that is difficult to interpret or contradictory, your game plan is to let scripture interpret scripture. So let me let scripture interpret scripture by referencing another uh, verse from this very same letter that John writes in, in an earlier chapter, in chapter one, where he says, if we claim, in verse eight, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So now John is saying that if you say you don't sin at all, you're basically a liar. So now, which is it? Because he seems, seems to be saying that we're imposters if we sin, and we're imposters if we say we have no sin. So which is it, John? I think an easy way of reconciling both of these uh, seemingly contradictory verses is with one simple phrase, and that's this. Christians are not sinless, but they will sin less. Let me say that one more time. Christians are not sinless, but they will sin less. The goal of the Christian life is not perfection, because we'll never achieve that until glory. The goal of the Christian life is progress. And so this explains why there is a constant 24-7 tension and war that is in the battleground of our hearts, because we are simultaneously a sinner and a saint. I like the way that Jackie Hill Perry, uh, a rapper, talks about uh, what, it, what it feels like to be a Christian after she got saved. And she says, is this what it feels like to be a Christian? I thought to myself, is it to have a quiet war inside of yourself at all times? And the answer is yes. When you become a Christian, there is a constant war that is in your hearts. Sometimes the things you want to do, you don't do it. The things you don't want to do, you keep doing it. And there is that battleground because we're both a sinner and a saint. But I do want you to know this, that when we become Christians, we're not, we're not light switches. So prior to becoming Christians, the light switch is off and our lives are all filled with darkness. And when we do become a Christian, the light switch is on and our lives are all filled with light. So our lives are not really like a light switch so much as the Christian life is like a dimmer switch. And the moment we become Christians, that dimmer switch should go up and our lives should become brighter and brighter and brighter. The goal is not perfection. The goal is progress. And this is where having good spiritual habits are so, so important because they help loosen the grip of sin in our lives. In Greek, there are three different words for the word life. There is a physical life, which is bios or bios. There is psychological life, which is suke, and there's also spiritual life, which is zoe. How do you know if someone has physical life? They're breathing. How do you know if someone has a psychological life? They're thinking and they're speaking. But how do you know when someone has spiritual life? And the way that you know someone has a spiritual life is because they're demonstrating fruits of the Spirit and they are practicing good spiritual habits as well. But oftentimes we forget who we are, we forget and therefore we forget to do these good habits.
In James chapter 1, 23 to 24, it says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And what James is talking about here is amnesia. When someone looks in the mirror and immediately forgets what they look like, that's amnesia. And because we forget our real identity, we listen to the word, but we don't really do the word. We forget who we are, so we don't do the things that we're supposed to be doing. And so how do we remember who we really, really are? And not only remember who we really, really are, but be proud of who we really are, to boast in Christ, to boast and be proud in identifying ourselves as a Christian. Because when we're proud of being a Christian, the more likely it is that good habits will follow. The less proud we are of being a Christian, the less likely it is that good spiritual habits will follow. And I think the key to remembering who we really, really are in Christ is to focus on what kind of family we belong to and who our Heavenly Father is. In verse one, John says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That phrase that John says, see what kind of love, uh, that's an idiom. And it can be uh, directly translated as, see what country of love. Or a more dynamic translation would be, what kind of foreign love the Father has lavished on us, or what kind of love that is out of this world the Father has lavished on us. And the reason why the love that God lavishes on us is so out of this world is because kids don't get to adopt themselves. Parents are the ones that initiate and adopt kids. And when parents adopt kids, they usually adopt kids that usually are healthy and not unhealthy. And they usually adopt kids if they're older, they adopt kids that are usually the lawful type and are obedient. They don't usually adopt kids that are lawless and rebellious. And yet, look at what John says about us in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. We are by nature rebellious people. You tell us not to do something, we're probably going to do it. And the reason for that is because our hearts are deformed, crooked, polluted, wicked and impure. And so that's why we do the things that we do sometimes. And yet even in the midst of our hearts being corrupt, unhealthy, God still adopts us anyway and calls us his own children. What kind of alien love, what kind of foreign love would do something like that? Well, here's how the spiritual adoption process works. The reason why we can be brought into the family of God is because his one and only son was sent out. And in verse five, John says, you know that he, that is Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Well, how does Jesus take away our sin? Because in him was no sin. And yet he who knew no sin became sin for us. Now let me flesh out what John is saying here in verse five with a parable that is not in the Bible that I once heard from another pastor. And the parable goes something like this. There was once an orphan boy that was penniless, hungry, and troublesome. 
And because this orphan boy was troublesome, one day he stole a car. But he accidentally crashed the car into a tree. And so the cops came to see if he was okay. And they arrested him because of what he did. And they brought him to a judge. Unfortunately for the orphan boy, he happened to steal the car that belonged to the judge. And so the judge said, you have two options. Number one, you can pay for the damages yourself. Or number two, you have to go to jail because you can't pay for the damages. But the judge seeing that the orphan boy was penniless, the judge stepped down from the bench, got down on his knees, or got down in a crouching position and said, but there is one other alternative. My one and only son, he will pay for all your debts under two conditions. Number one, you must plead guilty to everything you have done. And number two, you must allow me to adopt you into my family where you will be my son and I will be your father. And in this parable, what we see is a picture of the gospel where Jesus Christ pays for all of our debts, all the wrongs that we've done, not with money, but with the cost of his life, because that is how high the price was. And all we have to do is to plead guilty to everything that we have done, to own up to it, and allow God to adopt us as his children, where he will be our father. I love the doctrine of justification because it's legal language of how guilty sinners become innocent. But I also love the doctrine of adoption. And the doctrine of adoption is not legal language so much as it is relational language. And it's not about how guilty sinners become innocent, but it's about how orphans become family. And that is what God does with us through our elder brother, Jesus Christ, and what he has accomplished on our behalf. The gospel changes heaven's courtroom procedures from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony where we are welcomed into the family of God. And this relationship as sons and daughters of God, that changes everything about us. Uh, I was once listening to a talk uh, by a pastor up in the Heights and uh, he played college baseball. And so he wanted his kids to play baseball as well. And he was sharing this story about how his eight-year-old son uh, was up at bat and it was a dream scenario. Uh, the bases were loaded, there was two outs and the count was uh, two strikes and three balls. And his son was up to bat and his son was so nervous uh, with the situation that the coach didn't call a timeout, but the son called a timeout. And instead of running up to the coach, uh, the son ran up to his father and the son said, dad, I am so nervous. And so his dad said to him, son, um, whether you hit a grand slam or you strike out, you will always be my son and I will always love you. And so with that great pep talk, his son went back up to home plate, kicked the dirt you know, off his cleats, got into his stance, the pitcher threw the ball, his son swung with all of his might and he struck out and they lost the game. But even though they lost the game, in many ways his son was a real winner that day 
Because on that day, his son realized that his status as a beloved child, beloved son, it could be never taken away. It's not based upon his performance or his achievements, his accolades, his resume, or winning something. Rather, his identity as a child is something that is not achieved, but it is received and it is freely given to him. Uh, And it was earned on behalf of what our elder brother Jesus Christ has done for us as children of God. And the reason why I want to share this story with us is because I want us to get in the habit of not forgetting who we really, really are. Uh, And I'll close with this story because if we forget who we are, uh, oftentimes the way that we act doesn't resemble what the Father really looks like. And I'll close with this story. So um, I think it was last November or December, which seems like years ago now, uh, I just wrapped up a CG on a Thursday night. It was like 9.30. It was dark. It was cold. It was wintry and it was raining. And we needed diapers urgently. So I went to Target and my plan was just to go in and to go out. So I go to Target and I get the diapers. And of course, there's a very, very long line for whatever reason. And so I'm waiting in line and there's a woman in front of me that is on her phone the entire time. And the line is moving in the uh, self-checkout line. And finally, we get towards the front and the woman in front of me is next up. Uh, But she's still feverishly on her phone and like three or four of the checkout stands open up. And, but she's so busy on her phone that she, she doesn't, jump on one of the stands and because I just want to get out of there, I say, hey, if you're going to snooze, you're going to lose. So I just jumped to one of the checkout stands and she says, um, excuse me. And I turn around and look at her and I say, hey, lady, there's like three or four stands that you can go to. And seeing that I was right and that there were like three or four stands that were available, she mumbled under something, you know, mumbled something under her breath and went to one of the checkout stands. And I shook my head saying she should have paid attention and I you know pay for the diapers walk outside and leave Target on that cold wintry night and as I'm speed walking back home uh, the Holy Spirit promptly stops me and puts a thought into my head and he said what if that person in front of you was a member of Exilic Would you have acted the way that you acted? Would you have spoke the way that you spoke? And I thought, oh, probably not. And then the Holy Spirit put another thought in my head. And he said, now I want you to imagine that that person walked into the doors of the Stewart Hotel and walked into Exilic. How would you feel? How would you you feel? And I I thought to myself, probably, probably pretty ashamed and probably pretty stupid. But why did I act the way that I acted? I acted the way that I acted because at that moment, I forgot I was a pastor. But not only did I forget that I was a pastor, I forgot that I was a child of God. And as a member of this family, this is not the way that I should act. But because I forgot who I am, I acted the way that I did. Who you are shapes what you do. At that moment, I just became a frantic, busy, speedster New Yorker. And I forgot that what I really am is a child of God. Who you are shapes what you do. What you do shapes who you are. And who are you? 
You are a forgiven, loved, redeemed, adopted, cared for, grace-filled, mercy-filled child of God. And when you understand that, that should change everything about the way you live your life.